that genetics actually only accounts for 7% of longevity, which means that 93% of it, it's up to you. So that is not something that you can rely on. Like it may reduce relative risk of certain diseases, but actual longevity, that is on you, the individual. Welcome to the Seamland Podcast, I'm Ho Seamland, and our guest today is Dr. Sandra Kaufman. Dr. Sandra is a well-recognized and credentialed medical doctor from the US, who uses her knowledge in cell biology, human physiology, and pharmacology to treat aging. She's also written two books in the Kaufman Protocol series, which establishes the seven tenets of aging and a ranking system for different longevity compounds. This episode is brought to you by Bond Charge, formerly known as Blue Blocks. My favorite light and sea foundation companies, Blue Blocks, has rebranded themselves as Bond Charge. They're now involved with a huge range of evidence-based products to improve your wellness and life in every way. Their extensive range of premium wellness products helps you to sleep better, perform better, have more energy, recover faster, balance your hormones, and reduce inflammation. My favorites are their red light light bulbs because they can be used to create a melatonin-friendly environment in your bedroom by shining only red and not blue or green light waves that will reduce your sleep quality. After starting to use these red light light bulbs, I find it much easier to fall asleep and feel less awake before bed. If you want to try out these amazing products that are the cornerstones to my most optimal sleep, then head over to bondcharge.com forward slash seamlund and use the code seam15 to save 15%. Dr. Sandra, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun the last time. It's going to be great again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And uh, for people who don't know, then uh, we did our first podcast, uh, I think maybe 2020 or some, something like that a few years ago. And uh, yeah, now many things have changed. Um, you actually have like a new book, second book, out now and uh, yeah like um, maybe we can start by talking about the second book in terms of you know what's it about and uh, yeah what can people learn in it no absolutely love to um so you're right i put out the first book about three years ago and it covered pretty much everything we knew at that point and i talked about the seven tenets of aging in terms of what cells do uh, and I proposed 14 to 15 agents um, as to sort of what they did and how well they did it in each of those categories. So fast forward three years later, so much has changed. Um, the amount of scientific information in the longevity world is just sort of exploding. Um, and every time I went to put the book out, something new came up. And I'm like, oh, my God, I have to include this. So finally, I had to put the kibbutz on it and say, OK, enough's enough. Here's here's the line. So the new book has 28 additional agents in it. And as you read about the different agents, it gives you updates as to sort of cellular dysfunction and how we can fix it. So it's sort of a, a twofer. You get more agents and more understanding of cellular aging at the same time. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, how how has like our understanding about aging uh, changed over these years? Um, is there like any major breakthroughs or anything like that? Or uh, do we understand aging uh, better now? Well, I think that's what's happening is it's becoming more granular. Uh, so, for example, you know, 10 years ago, we sort of knew why you aged. Five years ago, we understood that it was cellular. You know, for example, we know that sirtuins are important. Right. And everyone has been focusing on the first sirtuin. Uh, so which is why everyone's on resveratrol or pterostilbene 
we know that you want to maintain like a homeostasis because it's it's a huge master switch or mastermind of, of the cells. But so in the years since, we know that other sirtuins are important as well. So I'm on this new kick. Sirtuin 3 is the mastermind of the mitochondria, for example. And if you don't control sirtuin 3, your mitochondria fail, your energy stores fail, and therefore it's hard to control cellular aging. So it's just more granular. We know more in each subcategory. So that that's sort of what's changing. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. But uh, do the same uh, tenets, the seven tenets that you talked about in your first book, do they still apply or have you like, you know, updated them or anything like that? So what I've done is I've added to them. So as an example, tenant one is DNA alterations. And we know that telomeres get shorter and we know that you get epigenetic modifications. But I've added to that and I've now support the idea of structural stability of your DNA, like DNA protection. Um, and I stumbled upon spermidine, which is now a buzzword. Everyone's kind of thrilled with it now. But what's really cool about spermidine is I consider it a bubble wrap to your DNA. Um, it's a long positively charged chain and it sticks to your DNA, which is a large negatively charged chain. And it's been shown in test tubes and cultures to actually protect your DNA. So I think that that sort of, you know, it's, it's more to each category, I guess, is to answer your question. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can uh, go through the uh, seven uh, tenants once more so that people can, you know, know about it. So uh, what are the seven tenants of aging? So uh, tenant one, as I alluded to, is is DNA alterations. Um, again, it's uh, telomeres that get shorter over time, secondary to cell division and stress. Then there's epigenetic modification, which uh, speeds up aging. And of course, we should take our epigenetic modifiers. And as I said, DNA structural integrity is important. Uh, tenant two is mitochondria. The mitochondria fail for very specific reasons. And for example, in book one, I talk about NAD deficiency, which is why anyone over 40 should be on some sort of NAD precursor supplement. Um, as well, we talk about free radicals because oxygen and mitochondria ultimately create uh, free radical species, which sort of uh, destroys a lot of things. New this time around, and this is kind of cool, there's something called the mitochondrial permeability transition pore. And I know that's kind of a mouthful, uh, but it's a pore that sits in your mitochondria. And as you are young, it just sort of flickers open and closed. And it sort of lets little bits of um, stuff out of your mitochondria to sort of maintain homeostasis. As you get older and your mitochondria age, it sort of opens more and more and more. And it's sort of like opening the floodgates. So all of this toxic stuff from your mitochondria flood into the cell, the mitochondria bites the dust, the cells die, and voila, your, your, your organs perish. So mm -hmm. we now know that helping to control the mitochondrial pore is extraordinarily useful. So that, that's just sort of an example of an update. Uh, so three, of course, is pathways. And I talked about the sirtuins. Of course, there's seven mammalian sirtuins. We know more about sirtuin three in the mitochondria. We know more about sirtuin six, which is also uh, in the nucleus. And it helps one, it helps with homeostasis in terms of DNA processing, uh, repair, replication. And it also helps with stem cell integrity and that sort of thing. Um, on the AMP kinase up front, uh, we know that uh, caloric restriction, that everyone's on these like crazy caloric restriction diets, um, and it helps in every category, but especially in this category, we know that it activates uh, AMP kinase, therefore putting you into a sort of state of hibernation. And that's extraordinarily important for longevity. Uh, and then, of course, there's the mTOR pathway. I always call these the big three in the pathways. And there's, a, you know, there's still the, the raging war about rapamycin and to do it or not to do it and what dose to take. And I'm sort of 
not a huge fan of that at the moment, but we'll, we'll see as, as time goes. Uh, tenant four is what I call quality control. And these are repair mechanisms. Um, so there's DNA repair mechanisms, there's protein repair mechanisms, and there uh, is autophagy. Um, huge in the autophagy world, we're now knowing that uh, the more autophagy you can use, uh, the better off your cells are. Uh, spermidine, again, not to sort of be, uh, it's spermidine dominant, but that, that's a huge autophagy inducer. And we sort of know how it works on a cellular basis. So that's kind of useful. Um, in terms of DNA repair mechanisms, uh, people are like, oh, is that important? And the answer is it absolutely is because you have 10 to the fourth to 10 to the fifth DNA errors per cell per day. If you don't fix them, you're going to either become senescent or get cancer. So repairing those is extraordinarily useful. And we have a few new agents now that we know can actually uh, improve DNA repair. So that's kind of cool. Uh, tenant five is your uh, immune system that, of course, fails over time and becomes your uh, inflammatory system. Mm -hmm. And we sort of understand more components to that. We know, for example, that we need to upregulate our natural killer cells in the immune system. Uh, natural killer cells, for people that don't know, is part of your um, immune system, obviously. And it actually attacks your own cells that have gone uh, awry. I like to think of them as the hitmen of your immune system, such that if you have viral cells, or, or I'm sorry, cells that have been attacked by a virus or a foreign body and or senescent cells and or cancer cells, this is what uh, natural killer cells get rid of. So if you can operate your natural killer cells, you're going to do better. Uh, so that's sort of that uh, new in that category. Uh, six is individual cell requirements, and this is the recognition that all cells are not the same. So we want to keep our stem cells nice and healthy. We want to make sure we get rid of our senescent cells, and there's some senescent cell protocols that are floating around, and that's kind of new. Um, and then, of course, it's the recognition that a red cell is different than a liver cell, which is different than a brain cell, and all these things need different things. Uh, and then in the last category, which is waste management, it's basically glycation issues. Uh, and in this category, we all know that glucose is bad for us. And, you know, everyone goes on their glucose starvation diets and they check their glucose monitors. Um, I like to outsmart the system in a bit of a different way. So I have a seven step method for blocking glycation. Uh, and there's some new medications out there and some new over-the-counter stuff that are actually extremely good about blocking AGEs or eradicating AGEs. Um, so there's probably little bits of information in each category that has sort of evolved over the past few years and continues to evolve. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's so, probably more than you wanted to know at one time, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can we can uh, talk a bit. Yeah, it's good that you gave like a overview first, uh, and then we can maybe talk about it more in detail. But um, but what were like um, what is let's say like a life from a lifestyle perspective? Like what is this kind of a, let's say anti aging lifestyle? What does it look like in terms of the targets all these uh, tenets? Is there anything like that, or is it very like you know subjective, or is are there any like you know yeah things that we need to do or everyone needs to do? So what's really interesting is in each tenet of aging, it has become extremely apparent that diet and exercise are crucial uh, in every category. If you are overweight and a couch potato, every system fails. Uh, so just in terms of lifestyle, exercise is extraordinarily important. Um, I'm not an exercise physiologist. Everyone wants to know exactly how many minutes they have to exercise. And I really have no blooming idea. But the idea that you keep your muscles strong and healthy and you do a significant amount of aerobic exercise is extraordinarily important. Um, additionally, you know, your diet is very important. Eating Twinkies and smoking pot is going to destroy your epigenetic profile. So you're going to age significantly faster. 
Um, and people are on all of these crazy diets and there's some evidence that some of them are good and some of them are not. And I don't want to dissuade anyone from doing anything radical. Um, caloric restriction is definitely proven to be very good for longevity. The rest of it, it's a little bit questionable, at least in terms of, of longevity. So in terms of just easy stuff, diet and exercise are absolutely crucial. Um, but then there's other things you can do every day. I'm obviously a big proponent of supplements and adjuvants because I like to cheat the system via altering my metabolism. But there's lots of things you can do. Um, like, for example, red light uh, and infrared light uh, recently have just been proven to be amazingly beneficial. So I sit in front of my BioLite uh, eight to 10 minutes a day and you know, it's supposed to boost your immune system, your skin gets better. I can definitely tell you that I sleep significantly better. And when I forget to do it, I kind of regret it. Um, so there's all sorts of easy stuff you can do with actually without having to swallow things. Mm, mm. And uh, what are some of the like, let's say commonalities uh, that like make you age faster? Like you mentioned that causing or damaging the epigenetic profile. So like, how does that look like? Or yeah, what does it mean? So, so well, we'll back up a little bit. I'm not sure if your listeners know what epigenetics are. So I'll, I'll explain that just a little bit. Um, if you picture your DNA, it looks like uh, a ladder that's twisted. So it's a spiraling helix. That's what we've all been taught. It was discovered in Watson and Creek by the in 1950s. But on top of that, meaning epi, uh, there are additions to your DNA. And they can be either on the DNA itself. And this is called methylation. So little methyl groups glue themselves on the side of these chains. Um, and then the DNA wraps around these complexes called histones. And histones, um, I like to picture, I, I describe um, the idea of like Christmas lights. There's a chain, it wraps around the light, and then it keeps going in a chain, it wraps around the light. So you sort of see globs with, with bridges in between. And the histones themselves get uh, altered. And when you alter that, it either control, it basically controls if you can use that piece of DNA or not. Uh, and that gets acetylated or glycosylated or phosphorylated or methylated. And all of these different things control obviously what your DNA can do. Uh, there's patterns that are expected uh, and we can actually measure those. Uh, people take an epigenetic clock. It was first invented by Steve Horvath because there's 363 areas, at least per him, um, that either get hypo or hypermethylated over the course of time. And it gives you an idea what your physiologic age is. But then there's something called epigenetic drift. And this is what we can all control via sort of being nice to our epigenetics. And it sort of is the reason that, epi that uh, identical twins look less identical as you get older. So this is sort of the, the question that you're getting to. What can you do? And, and the answer is, and, and it's, it's sort of an easy answer. Anything that your grandmother told you was bad for you is probably a negative epigenetic modifier. On the list, it's it's alcohol, it's illicit drugs, it's Twinkies, it's being a couch potato, it's, it's that sort of thing. Um, what can you do positively for your epigenetics? Well, it's obviously the reverse of those. Don't be a couch potato, don't smoke, don't drink. But then there's also things that are very helpful. For example, green tea, one of the active ingredients is something called ECGC, and it's an amazingly positive epigenetic modifier. Sulfurophane from broccoli, again, an amazing positive epigenetic modifier. The list goes on and on. Whereas veritrol from, from grapes, uh, quercetin, fisetin, all of these things are just extremely positive epigenetic modifiers. And you can either eat them in fruits and vegetables, or you can take them in concentrated form uh, via a pill. Mm, gotcha. So, um, yeah, I mean, it maybe depends on the grandma or <laughs> how healthy the, how <laughs> that's, that's, the grandma was, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Actually, actually, I should take that back. My grandmother uh, was rather large and a uh, couch potato. So maybe she didn't give us, and she was a big, giant German woman. So maybe she didn't actually have the best advice, but maybe yeah. maybe a healthy grandmother. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like I would imagine most, most grandmas, they would, you know, offer the grandchildren like candies and cookies quite often <laughs> if they come to visit. So, yeah. All right, so maybe that was a bad example. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I think many people get your point here, yeah, like, you know, that uh, what your grandma ate and, you know, what they did in terms of uh, their lifestyle is probably, yeah. Right. So I, I picture, you know, in, in the olden days, you know, when it was it was Christmas, they didn't give you candy. They gave you an orange, you know, or you went outside they gave you a sled and you, you know, went sledding or you, you know, had snowball fights or you played in the garden or, you know, normal outside physical activity, normal healthy foods. <laughs> that is sort of epigenetically positive versus the garbage that we eat and the couch potatoes mm. that we created of this generation. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, how does genetics play their a role uh, in the epigenetics and like longevity? So, so this, this is a fantastic question to ask because this is amazing. We all assumed uh, that if your parents or grandparents lived to be you know, very long, uh, we would as well, right? you know, and, and people, it's, it's amazing. I was speaking to a lady just the other day. She's like, Oh, my grandfather was 110. My grandmother was 105. She's like, I've got it made, <laughs> but it turns out that genetics actually only accounts for 7% of longevity. Wow. Seven, which means that 93% of it, it's up to you. So that is not something that you can rely on. Like it may reduce relative risk of certain diseases, but actual longevity that is on you, the individual. Mm, yeah, well, I don't know if it's good or bad news, but <laughs> I think, you know, most people will still uh, be happy to hear that, yeah, like your genetics aren't your destiny, um, you know, that they can still control it a lot. But at the same time, it can also be, you know, that uh, they don't want the responsibility or uh, to uh, say they don't, have, they, don't, they don't have to like, you know, they, don't, they can't escape to their bad genetics in terms of that, uh, whether or not they live long or not. Well, I guess it's it's a double-edged sword, right? You can either say, oh, they lived forever. I'm going to be fine. I don't have to do anything. Or, you know, alternatively, they didn't live very long. I'm screwed. I'm not going to do anything, right? They're, those are the naysayers. Uh, mm. The positive folks are like, oh, fantastic. I can overcome my bad genetics or I can augment my genetics. You know, for example, if grandma was 110, you could be 120 with very little trying. I mean, so obviously it's just sort of, you know, glass half full, half empty sort of scenario. Mm. I'm actually excited about it. My my parents, my my father's alive. My mom passed away. Uh, not great health genes in the family. And it was one of the reasons that I sort of started down this whole path of what can I do to control my own destiny? And and I think obviously it's been shown that it's, it's a lot. Mm. Um, I think it's encouraging to people that want to do it. They can. And now we sort of know how to. Mm. Yeah, I agree as well that uh with new new science and information coming out all the time and it's you know giving people the option to at least uh do their best in terms of uh maximizing their uh, health and uh, longevity uh with the most available information uh but uh yeah maybe we can go a little bit more uh, in detail with the tenants of aging so uh number one information systems uh like dna so what are things like you know what go, uh, what damage this and uh, what can people do to like, you know, maintain it and uh, improve it? So excellent question. So telomeres, obviously, for people that don't know, it's the end of your DNA. 
Uh, our regular DNA is linear, so it's going to have ends like shoelaces. Our, interestingly, our mitochondrial DNA is circular, so there, there's there's no ends. Um, so we can't lose telomere length in, in our mitochondrial DNA, and I just think that's so cool. Um, but the telomeres themselves in your somatic cells do not get longer over time. In your stem cells or your stem cell-like cells, you can because you have a gene called telomerase. But in your regular cells, uh, you have a limited number of, of times the cell can turn over, and it's somewhere between 40 and 60. So it, it means several things. It means, number one, you want to make the health of your cell uh, as good as possible so that you're not constantly having to turn them over. Um, and secondly, you want to decrease stress because stress is known to decrease telomeres. Um, and a lot of this goes back to lifestyle too. So for example, if you took a fat woman and a skinny woman, the skinny woman's uh, base pairs are going to be 240 longer on average than an obese woman. Uh, smoking cigarettes. If you if you smoke 40 pack years of cigarettes, you lose 18 uh, percent of your telomeres, which is about 7.4 years. So we know that all the again the bad things bad for your epigenetics. It's, it's bad for your tel uh, telomeres as well. Um, in terms of things that can upregulate your telomeres, it's hard to make them longer, but we can decrease the rate at which they shrink. Uh, and there are several things that do this. Uh, on the market, there is um, TA65, the cycloestrogenol, which you can argue may or may not be the same thing ba based on what company it's coming from. Um, there's a very expensive product called 818, but it's very effective uh, that they sell in Japan. Um, astragalus is what they all come from. So certainly just consuming that on a regular basis is not a bad idea. Uh, and then there's a few other things that sort of sort of boost it, but maybe not quite as well. So telomeres are hard to sort of control, but it's certainly possible to at least accelerate their their loss. Mm. Is it possible to regrow them or? Um... So at the moment, not really. Uh, very bright people are working on ways to get uh, the gene for telomerase into your body. And they are hooking it onto uh, specific viruses, adenoviruses. The idea is if you infect a body with an adenovirus, they'll deposit this gene into your cells, and then the cells can make telomerase in, in all of your cells, potentially. Um, this is still sort of uh, experimental, so it's not you know user-friendly quite yet, but ultimately, it probably will. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Right. I, actually, I don't know when it was, maybe 2020, there was this uh, study that so that hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, I think it increased telomere length, if I'm not mistaken, or something that is very like considered to be like a groundbreaking study. But uh, what do you think about it? So what's really interesting about, about that study is so they used different patterns of high oxygen um, and somehow they it, somehow it did increase their their telomeres. So now the problem with this is it was a very specific pattern of high versus normal oxygen. Um, so now everyone's jumping into hyperbaric chambers. The danger of this, and you have to be very careful with these therapies, is that high oxygen is extraordinarily detrimental to stem cells. Mm. Uh, in fact, if you want to create a senescent cell, which is like a zombie cell, or I call them grumpy old man cells, which are horribly dysfunctional and bad for your health. If you want to create a senescent cell in culture, you take a normal cell and you give it extra oxygen. Mm. So we know for a fact that high oxygen is extraordinarily bad for you. Now, if you are in this particular study and you had very specific pulsing of it, yes, it was effective. But in terms of a regular person wanting extra oxygen to try to do this, it's just not going to be an effective therapy. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. 
For sure. So it's almost like, you know, there aren't like, there's always like some trade-offs when you do any of these things. Like, you know, later we're going to talk about rapamycin as well, but uh, yeah, there's like, you know, push and pull or uh, trade-offs in everything you do. Oh, w without a doubt. And you have to understand what your goal is. Mm. Um, if you wanted to measure one thing, fantastic. But the key to aging is you have to measure all of them, right? Yeah. And the least hanging fruit is the one that's going to get you in the end. So the key here is to sort of make sure you sort of manage them all to the best of your ability without mm. going nuts, of course, because you would be driven insane if you thought about this every day. <laughs> yeah. Or make a living with it. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe I will drive myself crazy doing this. Um, let's see. What else? So epigenetics we talked about, DNA st structure we sort of talked about. So mitochondria are just so insanely cool. That's sort of like the next tenet. Um, things to think about here. I'm sure people are sick and tired of hearing about uh, NAD. I'm mm. sure you're probably sick and tired of talking about NAD. Mm -hmm. um, the, the new thing there is that there are no, now home test kits. Uh, you can pay X number of dollars and test your, your nicotinamide levels, which is kind of cool. You couldn't do that before. Um, there's still the, the war between nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide that's sort of raging. Uh, in addition, people like the IV infusions, they like the patches, I think there's a nasal spray now. Uh, and all of this is just developed because people know that after the age of 40, you're probably nicotinamide deficient or NAD deficient rather. So that's that's not new, it's just they're just the, the war of, of supplementation is raging. So that's kind of fun to follow. Um, free radicals, of course, are a big deal. We sort of know about that. People are working on best ways to deal with that. Um, you can either A, uh, upregulate uh, something called NRF2, which is the mastermind that increases your own endogenous uh, scavengers, or you can take uh, exogenous scavengers, and I kind of do both. And if you're a do both kind of person, uh, there are many, many, many ways to skin a cat, uh, and that, that that's all in book two. Um, and then in the mitochondria section, I also, now that we're talking about the mitochondrial transition port, we mentioned that, and I think it's becoming extraordinarily apparent that you can do all of those things, but unless you activate sirtuin-3, which controls all of that, nothing's going to happen. So sirtuin-3 um, activates 84 different proteins in your mitochondria, and of course it's NAD dependent. And without it, you're just sort of semi-screwed. So that's extraordinarily important. One of the, the neat things that activates sirtuin-3 is actually, it's called Hanukoil, comes from Magnolia, and the bioavailability is terrible. And in fact, just earlier today, I was on this quest to find a more bioavailable version of that and stumbled upon a company, I think from Holland or Amsterdam, I'm not, I'm not uh, and they make it in a micro, not micronized, it is, what is it? Um, you can cut this part out of the interview because now I'm completely blanking. It, no, it's microsomal. I apologize. Um, so they make microsomal Hanukoil, which is going to be amazing for upregulating our sirtuin threes. So that's kind of cool. Mm, gotcha. Uh, have you heard about like sirt six as well, uh, which uh, is also like I think it helps with like yeah DNA repair and DNA damage. So, well, so lots of things help actually with DNA. So that, that would be uh, quality control. So that's um, skipping down, skipping down the route. Um, yeah. There's a whole variety of amazing things. So DNA repair is controlled by your sirtuins, uh, mostly one and six, but other ones do it as well. And then you need to make sure you have the uh, uh, materials to do it. So there's certain amino acids that are especially important. You need enough uh, nicotinamide or NAD because you use that to actually uh, help with the uh, base excision process. Um, selenium actually increases DNA repair as well. 
Um, anyway, there's a, there's a whole lot of things you can do. And it's actually kind of cool. There's two tropical plants. They come from different tropical areas. Um, one is sold as cat's claw uh, or AC11. And the other one is fern block or um, was it? Uh, polypodium. And they both help to get rid of something called CPDs. Uh, and this is where your DNA sort of gets melted together by UV radiation. And mm. what I think is amazingly cool about that, that is plants have had their DNA melted together. And they're like, this is ridiculous. We've got to evolve a mechanism to fix this. Like, I'm personifying plants here. Um, but clearly they were capable of doing it. And if we consume that, then we also have the ability to repair our DNA more quickly. So I, DNA repair mechanisms are incredibly cool. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, very, very awesome. Uh, so DNA maintaining like... DNA is uh, kind of crucial for preventing like this epigenetic drift, if I get it right. Well, right. So, so DNA errors, what's interesting, so you, roughly 10 to the fourth, 10 to the fifth DNA errors per cell per day, and 10 of them are double-stranded, and the rest of them are single-stranded. Mm. Um, so basically, yeah, you need to upregulate. There's five basic mechanisms for doing this. And each one has its particular requirements. Um, and, and, and I, you know, it's, I talk about all the seven tenants as if they're completely and utterly isolated, but clearly they're not, right? Um, I like to show them in a Venn diagram with like them sort of all overlapping because clearly they do. And you're right, upright Euler-Sirtuins to help the DNA repair mechanisms. And then you need the energy to do it from your mitochondria and you need, to, you know, blah, 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 blah. So it's very interconnected. So if people thinking that I've completely separated anything and that's garbage, the answer is you're right, I have, but I, with the understanding that we know that you can't actually separate all of these things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to look at it uh, as a whole system. Like, uh, and previously you said as well that, you know, there's not just one thing and it's, yeah. Aging is a multifaceted problem. Uh, everything goes wrong at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Um, but you look like you're 12, so I don't think you have to worry about this yet. Uh, well, I'm 28, uh, so yeah. <laughs> well, you, you're going to physiologically start aging at 35, so you're, you're set for a few more years. Yeah, well, they say that there's some switch. Oh, you know, I've heard people say there's a switch at like 35 or 40. Uh, where things start to go bad. So yeah, we'll see. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, sirtuin 3 starts dropping when you hit 30. Okay. That's the first measurable, at least the first thing that we know of uh, to, to start. So you've got two years and then and then, then you're on. <laughs> uh, are there like any other like lifestyle activities that uh, increase sirt 3 or other sirtuins? So, uh, you know, I... It, Exercise increases it because of feedback loops. If you're if your cell, specifically your muscle cells, tell your body that you need more energy, uh, mitochondria get upregulated to create more energy. Um, so honestly, in every category, diet and exercise wins. Um, so if you're looking for like the, e the the easy way out, well, I don't know if it's easy, but that that's the the easiest way out, other than swallowing a whole lot of things. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what about like, you know, sleep or sleep is also important? Sleep is sleep is absolutely important. I'm not a sleep specialist in any way, shape or form. Uh, I will tell you, however, that if you get less than five hours of sleep, you're decreasing your telomere length by 6% over the course of time. So mm -hmm. we know it's incredibly detrimental. Uh, in the old days, people used to brag about how many hours they didn't sleep, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I only slept two hours last night and I'm doing great. Well, that's lovely, but it's going to kill you in the end. 
Um, and interestingly enough, a lot of DNA repair mechanisms and proteins that promote that actually are made at night. So if you are not sleeping, you are not repairing your DNA. Therefore, you're actually a setup for cancer. And there was a study many years ago that demonstrated that people that had night shifts had increased cancer rates, probably because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So DNA damage will increase risk of uh, cancer. Oh, 100%. Mm -hmm. And uh, what about like, do the other, what about the other, uh, these uh, tenants uh, or, you know, let's say uh, with your mitochondria goes, uh, you know, get damaged and old, uh, what kind of disease risk can you expect from that? So interestingly enough, it has to do with which cells you're looking at, right? So cells that have a lot of energy requirements are particularly prone to mitochondrial failure. Mm -hmm. uh, prime example, menopause. And, and granted, you have no idea what menopause is because you're 28 and you're a boy. That being said, uh, cells that have the most mitochondria are oocytes, which are the cells in your ovaries, and retinal cells, right? So in the course of time, those are the first things that sort of go as you get older. Women hit menopause because we have cellular failure, probably... You know, the actual real specialists are going to say, well, it's multifactorial, but a huge component is mitochondrial failure. Um, in addition, your your night vision starts going as you get older, and it's because of mitochondrial failure. So that that's huge. Um, so it just it sort of depends on what's important in in, in most systems. Um, obviously, DNA is in every cell, so that's a little bit different. Uh, pathways are in every cell, so that's a little bit different. But you could extrapolate this actually to um, uh, tenant seven, which is um, waste management, which is mostly glycosylation. And we know the glycosylation damages the specific tissues because we can we can take what we know about diabetics and then extrapolate it back to people that aren't diabetics, but we know those tissues fail. So we know that diabetics have kidney damage. We know that they have blood vessel damage. They have nerve damage. So those are the very particular tissues that are sensitive, for example, to the high glucose loads, um, which are going to go you know, over time to anyone that doesn't control tenant seven. Mm -hmm. what do you think is the like worst or most important of these tenants um like yeah like if the what is the uh, like the kind of priority in your opinion i think it depends on who you are if you're a normal human being with no medical problems and no family history i think they're all pretty equivalent mm. if you have a family history of something strong in your family like easy ones diabetes everyone in your family is diabetic and you are pre-diabetic without a doubt 10 and 7 is the most important one for you mm. uh, if you are a woman for example that has a series of autoimmune diseases 10 at 5 is going to be the most important to you right if you're mm. in a family that has a ton of different cancers perhaps dna mechanism dna repair mechanisms is going to be crucial so it's very individualized, just to sort of depending on who you are. And what's kind of cool is you can look at some disease, whatever it is, and go, ha ha, it's failure of X. Therefore, I'm going to focus on X. Mm. At least that's, yeah. that's what I do. I, I help people sort of do that. This is sort of my my my, my goal in life. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, now, tenant number three, so cellular pathways. What about those? So, so, right. So the big three pathways, we talked a bit about the sirtuins. Um, obviously, there are seven. I am obsessed with one, three, and six. Uh, the AMP kinase pathway we talked about a little bit. That's your major metabolic switch. It measures how much energy you have in your system. It actually measures the inverse. It measures how much energy you don't have in your system. Because AMP is adenosine monophosphate, which means it doesn't have energy at all. So it measures how much energy you don't have. 
Um, and it puts your body in a state of hibernation, which is why it helps with longevity. And it looks at your body for ways to either increase energy or decrease the requirement for energy. So it turns off a lot of energy requiring processes, uh, like making cholesterol, making proteins, that sort of thing. So it, that's how it puts you in a state of hibernation. It's associated with longevity. Um, unfortunately, of course, the enzyme fails over time as you get older. Also with disease and, and, and diabetes and that sort of thing. The good news is that there are ways to increase or boost our AMP kinase. Caloric restriction diets are probably the most effective, right? Because you are by definition making your uh, energy requirements or your energy availability low. Uh, but then there's a, a class of uh, medications or agents called caloric restriction mimetics. And they fool your body into thinking that you are energy deprived and they sort of turn things off and help with longevity. Um, does it, Barbarian does it. There's a whole sort of list of them that you can sort of cheat the system with. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of paradoxical that, uh, you're by like suppressing these energy pathways or, you know, AMPK is like a energy deprivation sensor, essentially that, uh, that has like a anti-aging effect or slows down the aging. Uh, whereas like, you know, I think many people may think that, you know, like speeding things up maybe like a more beneficial way of going about it for uh, slowing down aging but yeah maybe you need to slow the slow uh, your metabolic rate down or something what do you think about that well i think it, it, this is, falls into the category is you need to define your goal mm. uh, because the amp kinase pathway is kind of opposite to the mTOR pathway right so amp kinase measures your energy and shuts things down the mTOR pathway measures your energy and speeds things up uh I, mTOR is about building tissues and it's fast turnover tissues. Usually it's your intestine, it's your hippocampal cells, um, all the, the things that you are going to turn over quickly. And again, there's evidence that if you slow things down, you live longer, but define your goals. Because if you slow down your muscle turnover, for example, you're going to become sarcopenic or wimp um, by the time you're old. And we know that being having no muscle being frail is associated with not living longer right? So if you are an athlete, you want to keep your muscle mass. So deactivating mTOR is a really bad idea. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's funny, I was on a, a podcast with Ben Greenfield, and he didn't, you know, he was kind of annoyed that aging and uh, being an athlete were diametrically opposed at some points. <laughs> you know, so trying to do both, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not an Olympic athlete by any means, but you know, I, I like to think of myself as an Olympic athlete. Bah, ha, ha. Um, it's It's about timing, right? So I turn on and turn off these pathways uh, based on when I'm going to exercise and when I'm not. Mm. Uh, so it's it's sort of knowing your goals and understanding metabolism uh, and sort of figuring these things out. So for example, metformin, the big uh, drug that most people are on for longevity is a partial mTOR um, blocker, right? But you don't want to block it while you're trying to make muscle when you go to the gym. So you go to the gym, you wait your X number of hours, you take your metformin while you're sleeping, it wears off. And then in the morning, you're back to being sort of metabolically normal. So you can sort of time these things, hopefully to optimize them. Mm. Hopefully. Yeah, that's true. And rapamycin as well is one of the most right. powerful mTOR inhibitor. Oh God. Yeah. So rapamycin is, is just like sort of like a cannon. Um, it is the quintessential mTOR uh, 
antagonists, right? And um, the problem is, you know, they give it to mice and mice look incredibly good, right? Their, their skin is better, their hair is better, they move around, they're pretty active. People go, aha, this is genius. Uh, the problem is, again, fast turnover tissues are negatively affected by rapamycin. So memory is, is actually, in mice, is shown to be significantly decreased. You're not making new memories without your fast turnover cells. You do become sarcopenic, and there is a risk of GI issues because you can't turn over the, the cells. You shed your GI cells incredibly quickly. Mm. So at this point in time, you know, everyone is trying to figure out how much rapamycin on what schedule would be optimal. And, and at this point, I think that it's just a, not a great idea. Mm. Um, they are coming out with rapamycin um, over there called rapalogs. There, there, there's a difference between um, mTOR1 and mTOR2. And I think that defining how these different subunits work and controlling which ones you activate and deactivate, I think that's going to be the answer. And we're not quite there yet, but I do know that people are actively working on rapalogs. And I would venture to guess in a few years, that's what we'll all be on. Yeah. Uh, actually, like a few months ago, there was this uh, study or article, I don't know where, but that you, uh, the mice giving uh, them a rapamycin once for like three months or something had the same life extension effects as uh, giving them throughout their entire life all the time. So maybe like you need to only do it once or something. Uh, but then again, I mean, uh, three months in humans is going to be equivalent of like, you know, five or 10 years. No, exactly. And it's extremely hard to extrapolate from a mouse to a human. Yeah. Um, I know that there's study protocols right now where you take, I think it's either two to three milligrams, like once a week. Um, it does, is it going to be beneficial? Is it going to not be beneficial? I, I don't know. I mean, and I'm glad people are doing these studies. I personally am not ready yet to jump on that bandwagon because if I'm 110, I want to know that I'm 110. I'm not ready to like vanquish my memory. Uh, and I think there's other ways to skin a cat at the moment, but it is extremely powerful and we will have an answer at some point. We just don't have it yet. Yeah. Um, so we mentioned uh, tenant number four. Anything else you want to add there? Quality control. Quality control, DNA protein, oh, let's see. So protein repair mechanisms are kind of interesting. Uh, there's a whole science of proteostasis, which is every time a, a protein is made, um, it has a babysitter and it's a it's a chaperone. I love this fact that every protein has its own pet protein. It's kind of cool. Uh, and this pet protein, this chaperone, keeps it uh, folded appropriately um, along the life of the protein. It just sticks to it all the time. And then when the protein is sort of defunct, it takes it to the garbage can and then you sort of get rid of this protein. And you can upregulate or downregulate these chaperone proteins. And that's kind of cool. So like heat shock proteins, cold shock proteins, these are all chaperones. So people love their cold baths, which I think are kind of nuts. I personally like the hot bath. I think that's way more fun. Um, but you can sort of play with your chaperones uh, to keep your proteins intact. And, and one of the reasons that that is important is when proteins get misfolded. Uh, and, and I'll back up a little bit. Proteins work by the three-dimensional conformation. So they have to be in a very specific form, right? And if they if they fall out of this conformation, they don't work anymore. And so what happens if they if they sort of come apart, several things happen. So number one, the piece that is gets exposed to the cytoplasm that isn't normally exposed to the cytoplasm becomes uh, immunogenic. And that leads to autoimmune diseases. Uh, secondly, proteins that are misfolded tend to clump together and protein masses tend to be very toxic to cells. 
Um, prime example is a lot of the neurologic diseases. So like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, they all have these protein globs that stick either in the cytoplasm or in the nucleus causing complete cellular dysfunction. So having your proteins work uh, is incredibly important. And the upregulation of this is we're starting to learn how we control that. Um, heat shock, cold shock works, uh, as well as just regular up, up regulators. And, and there's several of those that you can sort of take on an intermittent basis if you want. Hmm. Gotcha. And uh, autophagy is also here. Right? So autophagy is cellular recycling. And I think I put this in this category because it's sort of the quality control, right? If something's not good, you're going to you're going to recycle it. Hopefully it's been demonstrated that um, recycling is extremely good for yourself. We tend to do it. So when we have low energies, uh, AMP kinase gets activated. You increase your autophagy versus mTOR that you decrease your autophagy. Um, basically, the problem with well, autophagy in general, 99% fantastic, right? We, we want to do it. It's good for us. The only problem with it is that every time you sort of take a glob and recycle it, there's a piece that you can't recycle. And it gets shoved in a vesicle in the back of your cell. Um, and it just accumulates. And that's called lipofusion. And the older your cell is, I, I, you know, the longer lived cells. If it's, if it's a short-lived cell, you're just going to shed it and it's not a big deal. For longer-lived cells, such as neurons, it accumulates in the cell and can cause a lot of problems just by, by taking up a lot of space. So mm -hmm. the more autophagy you have, the more lipofusion you're going to accumulate. So that part's not great. But in general, increasing autophagy is extremely important and it's associated with longevity. Mm. Is there a way to actually break down the lipofuscan? No, not yet. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> you can have a brainectomy. <laughs> no, no, you can't get rid of it. Mm, yeah. You can you can decrease the production of it. For example, uh, free radical scavengers. Curcumin is the main example here. It's been demonstrated to significantly decrease the formation. And there was one study that said they thought they could decrease it, but it's kind of iffy. Once it's there, it's really hard to get rid of. Um, but it's it's important to decrease the formation of it. Mm. If you yeah, so it's another example of this, uh, you know, uh, trade-off. <laughs> so obviously, you don't want to be deficient in autophagy. You want to recycle the cells, but if you do it, then uh, if you or if you do too much, then you still get like this byproduct that may not be uh, beneficial in excess. A hundred percent, right? So it goes back to why are we why are we increasing autophagy, right? Well, well, we're recycling parts that don't work. Well, why don't they work? Because they've been damaged. Well, why have they been damaged? Because of something down the line. So if you can decrease the damage in the front of the line, your mm. cell lives longer, you don't have to recycle quite as much, and then you don't have as much garbage in the end. So, mm. you know, it's 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 the, it's the long line. So if you sort of like improve it from every section, then theoretically, by the time you get to the end, you're like, ah, I got this. This is good. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, avoiding the damage in the first place is more important. But interesting, like if you, let's say, um, you know, you're doing things that increase autophagy, like exercise or saunas or fasting, uh, and you don't have like a bunch of other damaged cells, essentially, like, you know, you follow a relatively healthy lifestyle that, and you do things that increase autophagy, will autophagy still, you know, start to recycle things if there's nothing to recycle? Or what do you think about that? That's an excellent question. And, and I don't know. I mean, I can hypothesize, but I don't actually know. But cells are pretty damn smart. Mm. So I would venture to guess that if everything was working incredibly perfectly, you wouldn't recycle something that you didn't need to. Yeah, And, and that, that's just a guess from an evolutionary point of view. Yeah, I, I think so too. Like, you know, the body tends to know where, you know, or identifies where things are broken. And uh, if there isn't nothing broken, then they're not going to do it. Or they're not going to scavenge like healthy cells. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, right? I mean, I hope I hope that's the case. I hope. Mm. Fingers crossed. Uh, 10 over 5, uh, immune system. 
So your immune system. Um, so this is just, it's incredibly interesting. So your immune system does two things. So number one, it fends off infection. Uh, and two, it gets rid of cells that are not good for you. Uh, unfortunately, as we know, over the course of time, um, they don't work. So infection risk goes up, you know, viral, fungal, et cetera. Your body can't make um, appropriate responses to vaccines, which we, which we saw with COVID, right? These old people got several vaccinations and they just couldn't mount a response. Um, infections that you have that are latent become opened so that, for example, tuberculosis, you can carry it in your body. And as long as your immune system is intact, it doesn't bother you. But as your immune system fails, it sort of resurfaces. So that's a problem, uh, which is why older people get shingles, right? Mm. Um, so many things uh, uh, such as that. And then in terms of getting rid of cells that you need to get rid of, we haven't talked about it yet, but your senescent cells increase exponentially over the course of time and your immune system has to clear out these senescent cells. Um, but if your immune system is failing, you can't get rid of the senescent cells. Therefore, you have a huge inflammatory response and it just becomes more and more and more oppressive, which leads to obviously a chronic state of systemic inflammation. So that that's bad. You also can't clear out cancerous cells. So the likelihood of getting cancer over the course of time um, is very high as well. Um, anyway, so that, that's the basic gist of your immune system. You just lose the capacity to control what you could before. Um, the good news is there are many things that you can sort of do to boost this. Um, at the same time, unfortunately, uh, your immune system becomes inflammatory. And as I said, we're all in a chronic state of inflammation uh, for many reasons, but this is one of them, right? Your immune cells just sort of like don't know when and where to release their cytokines and sort of become sort of toxic. Um, so several things to do in this category. Number one is to boost your immune system and then two, to decrease the inflammatory system. Gotcha. Yeah. So are there any like supplements or um yeah like besides you know exercise and uh, maybe take an ice bath and that boost the immune system like <laughs> oh 100 there are absolutely things that you can do this um like one of my favorite mushrooms uh reishi um that boosts your immune system uh astaxanthin increases your immunoglobulins um there's just a, there's a variety of things i mean that's huge absolutely huge list uh and then in terms of uh getting rid of your inflammatory system um, or curcumin, right, which comes from turmeric, is incredibly potent. The bioavailability is terrible. So I, I like something called metacurcumin because it's in a nanomycel, extremely bioactive. Um, but there's a variety of things that you can sort of turn off your, um, your tumor necrosis factor or your interleukins that are kind of negative. Uh, there's, there's lots of things that, that you can do. Absolutely. And I would suggest people look at book two because there's a whole long list of them. Mm, yeah. Um... Next up, individual individual cells. So, so this is kind of cool. So this is where we recognize that all cells are not the same. Um, stem cells, we really want to take care of. Um, and stem cells, of course, have some advantages that regular cells don't in that they can increase their, they have telomerase, so they can increase their telomeres. But other than that, uh, they're set up for, for failure. And we want to keep them as healthy as possible because this is where all of the rest of our cells come from. Uh, stem cell can either right, uh, reproduce itself, become another stem cell, or it becomes a bone cell or a brain cell or this cell or that cell. Um, and the niche is extremely important. Um, I don't know if people realize the stem cells just aren't sitting out in the middle of nowhere. They're in a stem cell niche. And the microenvironment for a stem cell niche is extremely key. And this is where, again, if the oxygen goes up in a stem cell niche, you can kill off your stem cells. And clearly, you don't want to do that. Um, so that's, that's very harmful. Um, you can change the microenvironment around your stem cells in this niche to um, make cells do different things. So, for example, if you look at your mesenchymal cell population, 
if you sort of put extra different amino acids in this concoction, you can make a cell become a muscle cell versus a fat cell. So the environment sort of stimulates these cells to become whatever you need them to be. Um, what's kind of cool in the science of stem cells these days is researchers are trying to figure out how to take a standard cell that's already been differentiated and drive it backwards to become more stem cell-like. And they're getting very close to being able to do this. And that's going to be huge in terms of organ regeneration and, and, and that sort of thing. Again, we're not there yet, but, but we're making significant headway. Um, anyway, there's a variety of things that you can do for your stem cells to keep them nice and healthy. And I, <laughs> number one, stay away from hyperbaric oxygen, but there are a variety of things that you can do. Um, in the same category is senescent cells. We want to get rid of senescent cells. And people are like, what's a senescent cell? So this is when a regular standard cell uh, experiences DNA damage. The cell goes into a state of hibernation, which is called quiescence. Uh, the cell can either repair itself and it goes back to being a happy little cell. Or one of three things happens. It either becomes uh, apoptotic, which is just sort of commits cell suicide. It just goes away. I consider that the polite way out, right? The cell goes, I'm no good. I'm out of here. Poof. Um, alternatively, a cell becomes cancerous or becomes senescent. And a senescent cell changes morphology. That's why I call it grumpy old men cells. They get fatter. They get sort of globby. They get protein globs within them. Their organelles don't work very well. Um, and they uh, release something called the SASP, which is the Senescent Associated Secretory Phenotype, uh, which is a lot of negative cytokinins. So it just it imbues out this whole flood of negative factors. Um, scientists think that it does this to sort of stimulate the natural killer cells to then come and get rid of them. Uh, and that probably does do it uh, when you are young and have uh, very few senescent cells and a very potent immune system. But as you get older, these stem or these senescent cells, unfortunately, uh, nothing comes to get rid of them so that they just sort of uh, beget more of themselves. It's the bad apple in the bucket scenario because these um, these bad uh, cytokinins can then influence cells in the, in the surrounding area. So one cell can become 10 senescent cells and so on and so forth. So over the course of time, your accumulation of senescent cells is just exponential, um, especially if you have areas of pathology, for example, radiation, chemotherapy, uh, you know, injuries from, from, from college or, you know, sports, that sort of thing. Um, and senescent cells just creates a huge aspect of full body inflammatory state, essentially. Mm, yeah, zombie cells, kind of. <laughs> yeah, I don't like the idea of zombie cells. I like fat old guy cells. They're just grumpy, right? They sit there and they just bemoan, you know, the, how 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 bad life is, and they convince everyone else to be miserable too. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe zombie cells is more sexy. I don't know. Mm. Uh, and lastly, waste management. So glucose. Glucose is crucial. We know that glucose, uh, is, I said that it's sticky on the outside, it's sticky on the inside, so it sticks to all of your structures, proteins, DNA, lipids, et cetera, form something called AGEs, which are advanced glycation end products. Um, several things about AGEs. So number one, it takes the protein that you just spend a lot of energy making, and it's just dysfunctional now because you changed the 3D state. Uh, two... Um, they tend to be sticky and they land on tissues and they like to land on long standing tissues. So like collagen, et cetera, uh, and it can destroy the collagen. And this is one of the reasons that skin droops over time. It's why you get congestive heart failure without coronary disease, for example. Um, so that's a big problem. Additionally, they're extremely, um, uh, inflammatory. So AGEs number one, inflammatory by themselves, but then they land on these things called rages, which are receptors for AGEs, and they exude even more inflammatory factors. So you can see that by the time you are old, you are just in an absolute state of inflammation. It's just, it's, it's sort of pretty, pretty horrible. 
So the question then is, what do you do about the sugar problem? Um, and there are, I, I like to think of it as seven big steps. So uh, you can either not eat glucose, um, and I don't count that as a step because that's kind of not fun, but you can block the absorption of it. You can block where it goes in cells. You can increase where it goes in cells. You can excrete more in your kidney system. Uh, you can block AGE formation via a variety of things. You can suck up AGEs with a variety of agents. Um, there are a whole lot of things you can actually do proactively to block glucose. Mm. Um, so if you have a, you know, a medium to high hemoglobin A1C, this is something that you definitely want to sort of think about. Mm, yeah. Uh, what are the ways to, um, let's say, absorb less or, uh, yeah, reduce them? So what's cool is so when you eat... Um, carbohydrates, for example, they have to get broken down. And there's two-ish, three enzymes that do this. There's alpha amylase, which is comes from your pancreas as well as your salivary glands. Um, and that breaks uh, big carbohydrates into smaller carbohydrates. And then it gets to an enzyme called alpha-glucosidase, which sits in the lining of your intestine. And this break it breaks it into absorbable mono uh, and disaccharides. And interestingly enough, lots of things actually block these enzymes. Um, both natural agents do it and pharmacological agents do it as well. People have probably heard of acarbose. Uh, mm -hmm. That blocks both of these or all of these enzymes, essentially, uh, which is fantastic. It lowers your hemoglobin A1C, unfortunately, because you've got a huge load of, of carbohydrates in your gut. Uh, your bacteria go to town and you have a lot of um, gas and bloating. So mm -hmm. it's probably a good idea to block some of it, but perhaps not all of it because you're going to just not feel very good. <laughs> gotcha. What about like, let's say metformin or berberine? What, what about those? So that's going to lower your glucose load just um, in, in, in different mechanisms. Uh, metformin is complicated because it, it, it does it in, in several ways. Um, but one of the things that it does is it activates your AMP kinase. Uh, so it changes how your liver processes glucose. Um, it changes your gut macro, uh, microbiota so that you don't absorb as much. And it also turns off part of your mitochondrial um, electron transport chain to make it less efficient so that you're burning more calories doing less. So that, that one's a little bit more complicated. Um, but so there's, there's this fantastic drug that's sort of new, the new cool thing on the market, well, at least been recognized recently, that there's something called the Flozin family. Um, the big one is Depagliflozin. And what your kidney does is it absorbs glucose from your bloodstream right? Your kidney filters your blood and it takes out a ton of glucose. 90% of that glucose gets reabsorbed back into your bloodstream, right? By, by this glucose uh, transporter. But dipagliflozin and the flozin family block the reabsorption. So your kidney filters it out. It doesn't go back. So essentially you're dumping a ton of, uh, of glucose molecules. Um, so, you know, you can get rid of two to 300 calories just by taking that drug, which is which is kind of cool. Mm. So it's an actual like, pharmaceutical. Not a yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the pharmaceutical is incredibly potent and they're looking for natural agents that do this. And there may be one or two that kind of do it, but nothing is as potent as the actual pharmaceutical agents. Mm. Yeah. Usually they are <laughs> like that. And, um, and then my new, my newest favorite, and I have to share this because I think this is really cool. Uh, lactoferrin, which is an iron carrying molecule that comes from milk, right? 
Um, it's supposed to carry iron. However, uh, if you look at the molecule itself, it kind of looks like a bow tie and it has two sides that are kind of identical, not quite, but very close. And in real life, there should be an iron in each binding site. But what you can actually do is if you take extra lactoferrin, um, the, those sites can actually bind AGEs instead. There's a there's a 17, 18 amino acid uh, motif in that. Uh, so when if you take extra lactoferrin, it actually will bond, one molecule of lactoferrin bonds two molecules of AGEs and then you excrete it out your kidney. So I call it a, an, an AGE sponge, right? It's a natural agent and it just sort of cleans out your system. So I think that's incredibly cool. Nice, yeah. Uh, and I guess like, you know, uh, would it would it matter between, let's say like a fit and healthy uh, insulin sensitive person uh, versus uh, yeah, like a couch potato, <laughs> like in terms of their glucose response, would it uh, matter uh, the collateral damage that comes from that? Not really. Um, you know, what What exactly is insulin resistance? It means you've got so much insulin pulsing through your body, it doesn't do anything anymore. It just means that your receptors have been sort of overwhelmed, right? So depending on which tack you take to get rid of glucose, it's, it may or may not depend on insulin. So for example, you know, dumping it out your kidneys, anyone anyone can do that. It, it makes no difference whatsoever, right? Mm. Um and you're only going to dump out what your kidney is absorbed. So if you tend to have low blood sugar to start with, you're not going to filter out that much. So it's not going to drop you significantly. So you're not going to become hypoglycemic in any way. Uh, but these are these are things that are going to work for anyone. It doesn't matter if you're a couch potato or an athlete. If you block your ability to absorb carbohydrates, you're just it. You know, it, it works for everybody. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in terms of the AGE formation, like uh, if you are, let's say, uh, if you get like a huge. Uh, glucose spike after eating a certain food uh would it be more harmful for you compared to you being or compared to you shuttling the glucose into it like your muscle glycogen stores for example would it be more harmful well i mean I, you know everyone talks about their glucose spikes i'm not convinced that the spike is actually the big deal i think it's more of a chronic problem right mm. the, so to make an AGE, it's it's a, it's a formula. You take some sort of a sugar molecule, be it glucose, fructose, galactose, whatever. And interestingly enough, just so people know, everyone makes glucose out to be the bad guy here. Fructose from fruit is actually seven to 10 times more glycosylating than glucose. So, mm. you know, I, that's not, fruit is not the end all be all. I mean, yeah, it has a whole lot of really good things in it, but the fructose itself is worse than glucose. So glucose is not always the enemy, but anyway. So if you take your sugar molecule, uh, and you stick it with some sort of protein, DNA or lipid, it has to be under oxidizing conditions and then you need a metal catalyst, right? So the more oxidizing you are, meaning the more free radicals you have, the worse it's going to be. So if you are diabetic or you are old, you're going to create more AGEs than a younger, healthier person given the same things that you are eating, right? So to answer your question, if you are a couch potato and you eat this stuff, you're going to have more AGEs uh, than a non-couch potato. Gotcha. Yeah. That just makes sense. <laughs> makes sense. But you can still cheat the system and get rid of them, right? Mm. So if you were the couch potato, you had more AGEs, but then you turned on your AGE sponge and you got rid of them, then theoretically you'd be in the same place as someone that didn't do any of it. Well, so 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 since we've been through the seven categories, let me tell you that I've created something called the longevity pyramid. Um, because people always ask me, well, what should I do specifically? So um, at least in the United States in the fifth grade or so, we had this thing called the food pyramid, and it showed you what you were supposed to do more frequently on the bottom and the stuff that you're supposed to do less frequently on the top. 
So I sort of changed this to the longevity period uh, pyramid. So at the bottom are things that you need to do sort of every day. Um, obviously, diet and exercise are important. Uh, oral agents are important every day. I put uh, red light, infrared light therapy in that because I'm a big believer in that sort of thing. Uh, and there's many other things that you can do every day, right? That's your list. And then there's things that you want to do like once a month or once every two months. And people love infusions. I think they're sort of silly, but people love infusions, glutathione, uh, NAD, lots of things you can do. Um, I personally use exosome infusions every month because I think that that's extraordinarily helpful. And if you compare stem cells to exosomes, uh, exosomes will actually give you 80% of the benefit of a stem cell, uh, but it's legal in this country and it's significantly less expensive and there's less health risk. So I'm a huge proponent of exosome infusions. Um, the other thing you can do is the way to get rid of senescent cells at the moment or the protocols are basically high bolus of these therapies every two months or so. So the options are fisetin, quercetin, or a chemotherapy agent called desinitib. Um, and you, you take it every day in a low dose isn't going to clear out senescent cells, but larger doses in a bolus system actually does. So that's that's sort of further up on our pyramid. And then if you go farther up from that, you can talk about DNA therapy, you can talk about the stem cell infusions, uh, a variety of things. And you know, there's a whole lot of other things people are working on. There's plasmapheresis, et cetera. And the very tip top of my pyramid, I always put cryogenics uh, because when you finally come to the end and you don't know what else to do, you can always freeze your body. But I think you only get one shot at that. Mm. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, you also have put together like a, uh list of different kinds of supplements that uh, have or can help with uh, these tenants. So yeah, maybe you can explain the system first and then give like uh, some of the main highlights of the supplements. Sure, sure. So we talked about the seven um, tenants. And so what I have done is I went and I looked at all of the or most of the agents that people talk about in terms of longevity. And being a very boring cell biologist and physician, I read through a zillion incredibly drab articles and determined exactly what an agent would do in each of the seven tenants. Um, and the system I developed was that uh, if it did absolutely nothing, couldn't find squat, it got a zero. If, if it showed evidence in a test tube or in a culture, it got a one. If there was evidence in models of animals that were not humans, it got a two. And if there was evidence in humans, it would get a three. So every agent that I look at now has a seven digit rating number, a bit like a barcode, uh, so that you sort of know what you're getting. And I've done the heavy lifting so people don't have to guess. And therefore, when people want to create a longevity protocol and they're pretty healthy, all they have to do is create a concoction for themselves where all of the numbers sort of add up at the bottom and they're sort of even. Right. It would be silly to have 19 points in one category and zero in another. Right. So sort of it turns it hopefully into a mathematical algorithm rather than a guessing game. Mm. Uh, the other thing I did in book two, which has additional 28 agents, is I kept track of which models uh, they tested things in. So, for example, if Agent X was demonstrated in humans to do um, amazing things in your brain, for example, um, I kept I made a chart. So. Um, in the back of the book, there's a chart of a variety of um, systems. So your immune system, your neurologic system, your kidney, liver, you know, et cetera. Uh, and then the agents. And so you can tell if you're very worried about, you know, neurologic disease, you go to the little brain icon or the gut icon or whatever it is, and it'll tell you exactly which agents will help you in specific categories. So I've tried to make this as user-friendly as possible to people to try to figure out what agents are good for them, you know, as individuals. 
Gotcha. And what are some of the main, uh, like, say, few examples of the uh, most popular? So the easy, the easiest example, easiest, and I, and I always use this because it's super easy, is um, carnosine. Carnosine and astaxanthin are my favorites. So carnosine is a dipeptide. We all have it in our bodies. Men have more than women and young people have more than uh, old people. So sort of, you know, obviously declines over the course of time, but it's a natural thing. So we all have it. Um, and it's, it does things in two categories. So it actually upregulates your uh, free radical scavengers. At least it does it in rodents. Uh, it does it incredibly well. So uh, it gets the two. Doesn't do anything in any other category with the exception of the seventh category, which is waste management, because carnosine is an extremely potent transglycosylating agent. And that means it can actually lift glucose off of other tissues, off of other molecules uh, and excrete it. And we have evidence in this in humans. So it gets a three in that category. So if you looked at it, it's like 0.2.0000.3. Et voila. Right. So if you put that on your little chart, you go, haha, I've got points in two categories and I have to find points in other categories. Um, and there's some things that have lots of points in all categories. So that's kind of nice. So people develop uh, sort of systems via sometimes they, they look for specific uh, attributes. Other people go with like, well, which agents have the biggest bang for the buck? And if you do it that way, actually, fisetin has more points than pretty much anything else. So that's kind of cool. Um, resveratrol uh, is pretty amazing. Uh, nicotinamide is pretty amazing. Um, so there, there's many ways to skin a cat. So I've tried to make the system available so that people can sort of figure it out. And again, what's good for one person may not be the right per thing for somebody else. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And you have the list on your website as well of the yes, yeah. scores. All, all of the agents are on the website. Um, absolutely. I took down, I used to have this sort of uh, a summation of what they did exactly. And people just didn't seem to understand that. And I got grilled with like, oh, we have no idea what you're talking about kind of questions. So I took that down, um, but I left all the charts up there. So if you want the numbers or if you want the uh, the icons with body parts, that that's all on the website. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, and where, what's the website? Where can people find it? It is kaufmanprotocol.com. Nice. Um, yeah, well, it's been amazing to talk with you again. And uh, yeah, like the, it's very, I think the system is like quite amazing as you cover all the like most important parts of that. And the supplement ranking system is also very like, <laughs> let's say, um, creative or uh, innovative in that sense of creating like a hierarchy. Uh, or a ranking system yeah but uh yeah before asking my last question where can people get your books where can they uh find you and your work uh so super super easy the books are on amazon uh if you if you type in kaufman with two n's protocol pops up and you'll find two books uh book one just has my icon on the front uh, which says kp and the second book has my face on the front so you can easily tell them apart um, if you haven't read one, reading two is going to be extraordinarily confusing. So uh, they're not the same. Uh, I would suggest going from one to the other. So mm -hmm. that that's the book. Those are the books. And my website is kaufmanprotocol.com. My email address is on there. And I answer all emails myself. Sometimes it takes me a little bit of time to get to them, but I, but I do uh, do that. And then Instagram is kaufmananti-aging. And whenever I'm doing lectures or appearances or anything I kind of find interesting, I will put it up there. Nice. We'll put the links in the show notes. And my last question is, um, what's this one piece of advice or habit that you wish you adopted sooner? Oh, gosh, so many. <laughs> uh, don't 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 go sunbathing when you're 16 with uh, with uh, baby oil. 
because <laughs> <laughs> when I was 16, that was the cool hip thing to do. And it led to a ton of skin damage, but mm. I think people know now not to do that, but that would be my piece of advice to myself going back many years. Okay. Awesome. Uh, well, yeah, it was a uh, great to talk with you and uh, looking forward to the third book. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to support this podcast, then check out our sponsors and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.